shit the bed. Well, howdy, folks. Time for us to do what the good Lord would refer to as a cleansing of the wicked. Gentlemen, let's do what God made us to do. Welcome to Now Playing's House of a Thousand Corpses retrospective series. If someone needs to be killed, kill him. Hosted by Marjorie. You Malibu middle class Barbie piece of shit. Arnie. He's one horny retard. And Brock. That whole bitch hog don't know shit. Let me take a guess here. Y'all having a Halloween party tonight. Now, huh? what makes you think that, big boy? Join us as we review Rob Zombie's films, House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, and Three from Hell. Well, I bet you'd stick your head to fire if I told you you could see hell. She was crazy. Beware. These will be spoiler-filled critiques of the films. Grandpa, watch your language. And like the films, these podcasts are intended for a mature audience and will contain harsh language and content. You wanted the goddamn boogeyman in your sunny little lives. Well, you've got them. Today we're talking about Three from Hell, starring Sherry Moon Zombie, Bill Mosley, Richard Brake, Danny Trejo, Dee Wallace, and Sid Haig, directed by Rob Zombie. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. This is Marjorie. And this is the clown dancing on the sins of mankind, Arnie. Welcome back. It has been 10 years and one month since we did our House of a Thousand Corpses review. Can you believe 121 months? I cannot believe this. When we recorded our first episode for this mini-series, I guess you would call we were anticipating Halloween. Rob Zombie had directed the second Halloween movie, and you two thought it'd be a good idea for me to get a little bit of education on Rob Zombie because you guys love these movies. And I was like, okay, sure, I'll do that. And it was just an amazing jump into the deep end of the pool of modern-day horror. And it was remarkable because back then, it, we haven't hardly done any horror, right? It was like... We were like three or four series <laughs> in for now playing, and I had not watched a lot of horror. Obviously, in the 10 years since then, I've seen all sorts of series and got my education in horror. But my goodness gracious, 10 years ago, it was a whole different world here at now playing. Yeah, we'd done Friday the 13th, Star Trek, Terminator, and then we were into Rob Zombie. And we weren't all that far behind with Saw. Have you revisited either of those films or even thought about them in the past 10 years? <laughs> I have thought about them a lot. I had re-listened to our two podcasts in this series to prepare, and after listening to our House of a Thousand Corpses, given that it has been 10 years and that I have seen so much horror since, that I should rewatch House of a Thousand Corpses. Because on that podcast, we have talked about this. Maybe in 10 years, I would feel differently. I think I actually said those exact words. It is 10 years. And especially given that you've now seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series that heavily inspired it, Whereas that wasn't familiar to you back when we did this original. Yes, rewatching House of a Thousand Corpses, it is impossible not to see the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre in there. And then again, I think I had a very similar reaction to the movie I had 10 years ago in that that first half, I absolutely loved it. Some of the acting in that movie was the best we've ever seen in a horror movie across the board. It's kind of fun to see Chris Hardwick again. Yeah, we didn't even know who the hell he was 10 years ago. We were like, there's Rain Wilson and the rest. And now it's like, oh, it's Chris Hardwick. 
Hardwick, who allegedly sexually abused that woman. And Walton Goggins, who, you know, usually plays creeps. This time he's playing a police officer in this town. So that was fun to see him too. So anyway, so the first half of the movie, I absolutely adored. The second half, I still did not find it entertaining. I still felt is going a little bit too far. And that was my conclusion on Rob Zombie when we went into the Halloween series. He does a lot of things right. The man has an incredible eye, but sometimes he just goes too far. And this particular movie, at the ending in the second half, I was able to take it a little bit more, given that I've seen so much since. But I still felt, I've had enough here. When can this be over? Even when they end up in a Black Sabbath album cover underground? (laughs) Yeah, the whole Dr. Satan thing was just like, if that's what they were building up to, they didn't do a strong enough job to actually get there for me. I was just waiting for it to be over. But I was able to appreciate the homages that I missed the first time, obviously, from just lack of knowledge, right? So that was kind of cool to be able to revisit that. Will I watch it again as a regular watching? No. No, I will not. I did not watch Devil Reject, even though I do remember liking that one very much. See, I went back and did a rewatch of most of Zombies films. I didn't actually intend to do it, but I did want to rewatch House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects, as I don't think I've seen them since... Around the time we did those shows, we might have rewatched House of a Thousand Corpses. It's a good Halloween movie, and we're always looking for what Halloween movie do we want to put on, and I think maybe six years ago we put that on. And you know, I still love that movie with its natural-born killers, multimedia delivery, and intercutting and everything. I mean, having reviewed Natural Born Killers by Stone, I see that all over And we even kind of called it out back in our first review, but I just can't escape thinking Oliver Stone meets Texas Chainsaw in that film. And yeah, you're right. Now, I obviously watch these with Arnie on the great rewatch because that's what we do. What's funny is now stepping back and again, seeing more movies through a different lens, because when we watched this, we were really new to now playing. And while I had seen lots of horror, I hadn't looked at things as a reviewer. So it was a completely different experience watching House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects for this show because I saw some kinks in the armor. I definitely noticed things I hadn't before. If you watch Sherry Moon Zombie when she's not the focus character, she does not know what to do in the background. She does not know it's her first acting role and she clearly is uncomfortable when she's not performing. But... I still liked that one. The surprise for me was going back and rewatching The Devil's Rejects, which I remembered liking. And when I listened to our show, I really railed on it. And I agree with everything I said. I just thought that I was nicer to it on the show. But yeah, that movie to me is inferior. I know a lot of people like it more, but it's a throwback film with characters that were more irredeemable and less fun to watch in a more realistic setting. Well, yeah, also he kind of more of an action-adventure movie versus a straight-up horror movie. There were some horrific things in it, but it's more of a road movie and a thriller, if you will. The movie that I would now equate it to, having seen it, and I hadn't seen it when we did the review, is Badlands with Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. And imagine Badlands if Sissy Spacek was as crazy as Martin Sheen. That's kind of the Devil's Rejects. Right. Here's the thing about Devil's Rejects upon rewatching it. It's good in certain parts of it, but as a whole, it's just kind of like totally just departs from the horror franchise and goes into something else. Well, the reason Zombie even made that is House of a Thousand Corpses. Here's an irony, just because there is some stuff we didn't talk about behind the scenes we didn't know back then. House of a Thousand Corpses was actually filmed in 2000. 
So it's been 20 years since that was filmed mm. until this new film. Oh, wow. And it was funded by Universal Pictures. And when Rob Zombie turned it in, Universal Pictures said, there's no way in hell anybody's going to see this. This is an NC-17 for sure. And put it on a shelf to never be seen again. Rob Zombie gathered some funds, bought the rights from it from Universal, turned around and sold it to Lionsgate. And while the budget on that film was $3 million and he went over budget on Universal's Diamond, I think he has said anywhere from 7 to $14 million on that film. Oh my God. I'm more inclined to believe the 7. But Lionsgate made $17 million releasing that film. Now, here's the really funny thing, is that Universal Studios, they now invite Rob Zombie to come back several times, including this year, to make a House of a Thousand Corpses haunted house. So, Universal wouldn't release the movie, but once somebody else released it and made money, Universal will hire Rob Zombie to make a haunted house about it. I looked that up, too, because I was really curious if Baby's tattoos were real. And in the picture that she and Rob Zombie were at the Universal Studios opening of the House of a Thousand Corpses, she didn't have any tattoos on her chest or her arms. And so I actually saw the pictures of them smiling at Universal Studios at the premiere of that House of a Thousand Corpses land. Thank God, because with all their money, I hoped she'd have a lot of money to get better tattoos. <laughs> I, they were just poorly done. <laughs> I actually had to look to see if they were real, too, because in Lords of Salem, she had a giant chest tattoo as well. And so it got to the point where I was like... Could those be real? But when Lionsgate made all their money so quickly, they told Zombie they wanted a sequel. Rob Zombie didn't want to make a sequel. Rob Zombie now wanted to make this Badlands kind of film. And so he and some of the people in the film said they don't even consider Devil's Rejects a sequel to House of a Thousand Corpses. It's a new movie that just some of the people who were in House of a Thousand Corpses are also in. See, that's what I said. It's the same characters, not related. I think if Zombie could have made any movie he wanted, he would have made The Devil's Rejects, but not had it any ties to House of a Thousand Corpses. Zombie said House of a Thousand Corpses is the film he's made that he likes the least. He says he knows it has a following, but he can't take that film and he would never make that film again. And it just shows his amateurish directing and he thinks he has improved so much. Now, I... I'm completely against everything Rob Zombie says about his own work because he also said Halloween 2 was awesome. Yeah, I was going to say. I think he's just a contrarian. Yeah, I, I wonder about his judgment here. Yeah, because after Devil's Rejects, we reviewed Halloween. That's his biggest film ever, of course. It still holds the record for biggest Labor Day film, and it was still the highest grossing Halloween film until the 2018 one. So it is second highest Halloween. Okay, great. And I, I agree with you, Halloween 2 is his worst film. <laughs> and you haven't even seen the director's cut. Oh my God, it's even worse. Mm -hmm. But he didn't want to make that film. Again, like Devil's Rejects, he was coerced by the Weinsteins. They're very good at coercion, I hear. <laughs> And they promised him he could make his magnum opus Tyrannosaurus Rex if he did Halloween 2. But then Halloween 2 didn't make much money. He went over to Blumhouse in 2012. Blumhouse was just throwing money around. They had paranormal activity money and they were giving money. Oh, you want to do a Stephen King adaptation called Misery? Here's a couple million. Oh, you're Rob Zombie and have an idea for a witch movie? Here's $1.5 million. And it was ambitious. You never saw this, right, Brock? That's Lords of Salem. I have not watched it, no. Don't bother. Imagine Rosemary's Baby, only if Rosemary was a DJ instead of a housewife. And if you want to see a whole lot of naked elderly ladies like Dee Wallace. Yeah, I don't want to watch that. I went back because 
I have a question, and I'm just going to reveal my hand now. What was Rob Zombie's worst film? Halloween 2. It's obviously Halloween 2. But what was Rob Zombie's second worst film? His worst original film? Lords of Salem or Three from Hell? In Lords of Salem, Stuart Marjorie and I reviewed that. We were very hard on it. On a second viewing with years past, it is better than I remembered it being. It's got some nice atmosphere. It's still a not recommend, but it was not the debacle and failure I thought it was. The worst part of that movie is its star, Sherry Moon Zombie, was not capable to carry a film in the way she was supposed to in that. You could have just replaced that one piece and that film could have been a green arrow. But Blum decided it wasn't good enough for wide release. It got 300 theaters, made $1.5 million on a $1.5 million budget, sent Zombie's career scrambling. His next film, 2016, he had to crowdfund it, 31. And for $1.5 million, he made a film that's probably the closest to House of a Thousand Corpses. Imagine, Brock, if you will, I'm guessing you haven't seen this either. Imagine The Running Man with House of a Thousand Corpses type gore. So he's has different people he has to face and they have to get through each one of these people to win a contest? To live. Okay. Sherry Moon Zombie and several other carnies that she is on the road with get kidnapped by Malcolm McDowell and put in this leviathan in which they are hunted by clowns who try to murder them. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) The thing about that movie is the characters were good. Not like the carnies, but like the different levels of characters. Like E.G. Daly as a crazy sex addicted sex head with her Swedish tall weird guy death head. The characters were good, but the movie itself... Okay, yeah, sure. (laughs) I think it's fine. I think it's a fun throwback. Richard Brake is in that film. We're going to be talking about him. He is a shining star of that movie. His opening monologue is still incredible. So I think that might be his second best film, but obviously Zombie was shall we say, in a rebuilding mode after Lords of Salem. I also think he lost his ambition after Lords of Salem. Mm -hmm. Say what you will about Halloween 2, it was ambitious. He tried some shit with that white horse and the ghosts and everything else going on. It didn't work, but he tried. I mean, he swung for the fences and struck out. Sure. Lords of Salem, he swung for the fences and fouled. Now I feel like he's just on autopilot. I think 31 had very little creativity to it. And now back to three from hell. Why are we back at three from hell? I've heard two different stories, both from Rob Zombie himself. The first was that Lionsgate came to him and said, we want another Devil's Rejects film. Would you like to do it? And he got together with Sherry, who he's married to. So that wasn't a big phone call. (laughs) Honey, come down to the garage, please. I got to talk to you about something. Come to the garage, for God's sake. I want to talk to you about something. Thank you. Oh, my God. How hard is that? Fine. Here we go. I got a phone. That's how it really went. But Sherry and Bill Mosley and Sid Haig got together and Zombie was like, what do you guys think? Because it's really the four of them are the heart of the franchise. Now, the other thing I heard Zombie say is that he went to Lionsgate with it 
after Lords of Salem. And Lionsgate said, we don't think there's any money to be made in this. So Zombie went off on his own, made 31, released it as a Fathom event, and came back and said to Lionsgate, look how much money we made with 31. It cost $1.5 million to make. They made almost a million just at the Fathom event, and then made all the gravy on the digital release and everything. So it made a lot of money compared to a $1.5 million budget. So either way, Lionsgate was like, okay, let's do another one of these. And hence, Three from Hell. And this was also a Fathom event. I know Marjorie didn't go. Did you go, Brock? (laughs) No, the answer is no. I had no intention of seeing it at the theater. I did have a chance to see it here at my home theater. It was three nights, September 16th through 18th. Each night had different bonus features. I went on the 16th where I got to see Rob Zombie say thanks for coming out and give a little bit of behind the scenes before starting the movie. On the second night, you would have seen a behind-the-scenes making of, which I believe was also on the Blu-ray. There was a 90-minute making of documentary. I think they showed the first 30 minutes of that at the second night. Oh my god, 90 minutes? That's the length of the movie. Yeah, there was a 90-minute making of and then a full-length commentary. So, yes. Wow. And then on the third night, September 18th, it was a double feature where you got to watch both Devil's Rejects and Three from Hell back-to-back. Oh, That's worth going to, I guess, if you're a fan of that. I went to the September 16th event thinking, if this is really good, if the Rob Zombie bonus feature is insightful, for now playing, I may have to go back tomorrow to see the other bonus event. It was a very full theater. Is it like an airplane where they tell you it's a very full flight? And (laughs) Let me put it to you this way. If it was an airplane, there still would have been some overhead space available, but most seats were taken. I was surprised at the turnout for the event, and I was surprised at the enthusiasm the audience had for this movie. There were moments in this film where they cheered. I've already said I wondered if this is Zombie's worst film. I was not with the theater on that mood. It made enough money, they did an encore. It just came back to theaters on October 9th to celebrate its video release, which is where it's making its money. I can't believe this, but yeah. It came out in 4K, Blu-ray, but if you went to Walmart, (laughs) Walmart, you could get (laughs) a special gift set that not only came with the Blu-ray, the DVD, and the digital copy, and a special Mondo poster-like cover, it came with a limited edition t-shirt of what Foxy wears in this, the Disco Sucks Ringer shirt. Okay, I thought you were going to say like a little miniature Rain Wilson as the mermaid person, and I was like going to go crazy. I thought like you know, have some sort of exclusive like figurine or something that you would get. <laughs> oh, thank God it's a t-shirt. Oh my God. <laughs> well, they have made toys of Spaulding and Otis and Dr. Satan and things. I mean, that was part of the reason Rob Zombie had these characters in his mind, is he just saw the fans embrace that film so much and those characters so much. He's gone back to the well here. Sure, of course. You know, you gave us the history of where he is with his career. In my mind, coming back to these characters after all this time, I kind of figured that something had not gone right. Well, he went back to something that he had some success with previously before it was too late, and that's why we have this movie. Why don't we get a plot summary? We can talk more about the actual movie, because I'm dying to hear more about your both impressions of Three from Hell. Arnie? Well, if you remember the end of The Devil's Rejects, the notorious killers died in a hail of gunfire. Or did they? In Three from Hell, we find out the notorious killers Otis Driftwood, played by Bill Mosley, Baby Firefly, played by Sherry Moon Zombie, and Captain Spaulding, played by Sid Haig, all survived. 
They were riddled with bullets, but pulled through in some form of medical miracle. They were put on trial for the crimes and sentenced to life or death in prison. The headline says they are given life, but they're on death row. Don't quite understand that. Spaulding actually got executed, but before they could get to the others, Otis escaped from prison thanks to an assist from his half-brother, Winslow Foxworth Coltrane, or Foxy, played by Richard Brake. During the escape, Otis also gets revenge on a fellow inmate, Rondo, played by Danny Trejo. Now, Brock, you didn't go back and watch Devil's Rejects. Did you remember Rondo? I did not. I remember Danny Trejo was in the movie, but I could not for the life of me remember exactly what he did to piss them off. But honestly, does 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 Otis really need a big reason to kill somebody? <laughs> not really. Yeah, when I saw this in theaters, I had not rewatched anything, and I also remembered Trejo was in the previous one. His death here shocked me, and so for those who don't remember, Rondo was a bounty hunter that helped capture the rejects in the last film. Now, together, the brothers work to free their sister Baby from prison, where she was being abused by a cruel guard played by Dee Wallace. Otis and Foxy kidnap prison warden Virgil Harper, played by Jeff Daniel Phillips, and the warden's family. They force the warden to sneak Baby out of prison, but then they kill the warden and his family anyway. The three decide to hide out in Mexico. There, they all make personal connections, but the seemingly nice hotel owner Carlos, played by Richard Edson, recognizes the three and sells them out to cartel lord Aquarius, who happens to be Rondo's son. That causes the dawning of the Age of Aquarius as the gang leader and his gang, called the Black Satans, come for revenge and shoot up the town, but Sebastian sacrifices himself to save them. They kill the Black Satans and set Aquarius on fire and drive off into Mexico as credits roll. Beginning of the movie. We find out they survived 20 bullets each, I think they said, right? And they miraculously survived that. But how could that happen? Sid Haig so clearly said... Yes, he very clearly said, They ain't coming back! They're dead, motherfuckers! I mean, we just released a snippet, like, a month before this film was announced of Sid Haig at San Diego Comic-Con making fun of people who asked when the next film in the series was coming. (laughs) Well... These are the movies, and they're serial killers. There can always be a sequel, and here it is. It's, I suppose, the only way out, right? It's a medical miracle. They went into a coma, they have a lot of bullet wounds, but they all somehow survived. Right, so 20 bullets can't kill Captain Spaulding. Lethal injection, though, does the trick. Yes. Now, obviously, when you see the scene, so after you get through the whole background and all that jazz, they get interviewed by a TV crew that are going into the prison, kind of like they did with the remake of Halloween, right? With the podcasters going in to talk to Michael Myers, right, at the prison. What I was thinking of very specifically was, again, Natural Born Killers. Right. With the public saying, free the three, the same way we had the montage of Mickey and Mallory rule, And the interview coming in, although the interviewer here doesn't leave an impression, and the interviewer in Natural Born Killers is Robert Downey Jr. Well, yeah. Okay, but also let me point out that we are also at the top of the bell curve for serial killer and true crime obsession right now. Yes. I mean, women are falling in love with Ted Bundy all over again. Well, they did back then, and that was something that Zombie was specifically trying to tie into with people saying Otis was sexy. 
He even framed some of these shots. Apparently, he has been obsessed since childhood with this Manson documentary that came out in the 70s. Right. And so he filmed some of the scenes and framed some of the shots and did everything he could to make these three be like the Manson family. In fact, the prison in which they shot this was a decommissioned prison, but it was the one where the Manson family women were housed. Yeah, so I totally caught on to the Charlie Manson similarities with Otis. It's really hard not to see that, especially with the beard and all that jazz. And they're carving things in the people's foreheads, right? So it's hard to miss. But you can clearly see when they're interviewing him in this movie that Mr. Haig was not well. Yeah, that's a sad state of affairs. And we've been noticing that when we go to conventions. I mean, Sid Haig, he was 80. When oh, wow. Was he that old? He's always looked old to me. Yeah, when this film came out, he was 80 years old. And... In fact, last year at a horror convention in Chicago, a new thing happening at horror conventions that's all the rage is even though these people are not your monkeys and will not perform for you, they are human beings and actors. Nowadays, they'll put on their old movie costumes and pose in a photo with you. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my. You can get a photo with Tony Todd. He'll bring out the Candyman hook and the Candyman coat. I got a picture with Robert Englund. They had a professional makeup guy do the full three-hour makeup job on him. Well, I was at this horror con, and Sid Haig and Bill Mosley were both there, and they were doing a costume photo where Mosley got in the red getup from the end of House of a Thousand Corpses with the white face paint like from the climax of that movie and Sid Haig got all dressed up like Captain Spaulding and I bought my ticket and I was so happy I'd get that photo and Sid Haig canceled his appearance he was not doing well and I knew things just weren't going well there were a lot of rumors on the con circuit that maybe he had cancer he came out on Instagram and it's like, I don't have cancer, motherfuckers. I just <laughs> lost some weight. He lost a lot of weight. He was always a robust gentleman mm -hmm. and he was pretty thin. As shown in this film. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, I'm not going to speculate on his health matters, but what Zombie said is this entire film, Three from Hell, obviously the three were going to be Captain Spaulding, Baby, and Otis. And then, like, two weeks before filming, he gets a call from Sid Haig, who's in rehab. Not like alcohol rehab. Like, you know, those extended care places you go after yeah. you're let out of the hospital. Okay. And Sid's like, I've been in the hospital, I'm in rehab now. Zombie went to see him and saw he was in no physical condition to do this, so he reduced Spaulding's part in the film and tried to do it. And Sid Haig couldn't pass the physical mandated by the studio to film. Aww. And so Zombie tried to figure out what to do. He ended up basically everything that we have here that Foxy does was going to be stuff that Sid Haig's Spaulding would have done were he physically able. The scenes we get with him, Zombie had to actually sneak him onto the set because they couldn't get any kind of insurance or approval because of his health. He was not doing very well, but he does very well in the scenes. Once they said action, he said that he was really having an energy you didn't see after he yelled cut, and he was able to pull this off. Five days after the Fathom event that I went to, Sid Haig passed away. Yes, I remember hearing about that. So I agree with you and happily for him that his last performance was effective. He stood out to me in one of the stronger scenes of the movie, in my opinion, when he was able to recapture the fervor of the character that I remembered and was able to watch again in House of Thousand Corpses. I think he did a great job in his scene. So good for him. And I'm glad he went out that way. I agree. Sid Haig, obviously 
has worked forever. He was in black exploitation films. He had a very, very long career. But I feel that Zombie gave his career a bit of a revival with House of a Thousand Corpses. And he suddenly became very in vogue to put in all kinds of current horror films, even though most of them were utter shit. And I'm looking at you, Night of the Living Dead 3D. And I'm also looking at you, Creature. Creature was terrible. Yes. I mean, I'm not saying he did good films, but he was back working a lot. And for his final role to be as this character that gave him an iconic status to horror fans in the 21st century, it sucks he's no longer with us and not able to play the character. But if you have to go, I feel like this is a fitting tribute to the character versus I'm glad Zombie got him in there versus just not having him at all or having this. What they started with was leftover footage from Devil's Rejects. If they just started with that leftover footage and cut to a headline that said Spalding dead, that would have been very unfulfilling. True. So at the end of the montage, they jump 10 years, which helps the actors, of course, because it has been so long, right? Clearly, though, even though they say it's 1988 at this point, right? During Baby's parole <laughs> hearing, you can see a photo of Reagan on the wall. Yes. That's right. But it seems that especially the warden is stuck in some sort of 1970s warp with his outfits and his mustache and his hair. A lot of these characters don't seem like they're in the late 80s. And like no one's wearing giant shoulder pads and there's not a boombox anywhere in sight, right? What world is this 1988 in? Yeah, this was not 1988. I mean, this is clearly late 70s, early 80s if you go on style. Zombie is stuck in the 70s. I thought Lords of Salem was a period piece in the 70s because they have DJs playing vinyl records and dressed like they're in the 70s. And all of a sudden they start talking about the internet. And I'm like, wait, what the fuck? I couldn't believe he made films in modern times. So yes, 10 years passed because these characters have obviously aged. It's been 20 years since we saw them in House of a Thousand Corpses. You got to pay that some lip service. But no, I think Zombie missed a great opportunity to lampoon the 80s or at least dig into the dark side of the 80s the way he did so many times with the 70s. He's feeling really one note to me with the 70s aesthetic, even though he's saying it's 1988. I couldn't get out of my mind. Every single time, especially that warding guy came on the scene. And Dee Wallace, though, she had a short haircut like in the 80s, like she had in the 80s, for goodness sake. So at least she had the right kind of haircut. But everybody else seemed to be trapped in some other world. Very, very strange. I also want to know exactly... Who was filming Otis's breakout? Who took the video <laughs> camera unit? I thought it was like a body cam or something, which didn't exist in 88, but whatever. Who recorded this and who edited it? <laughs> why, why? I thought they played to the camera a little bit, too. They were well aware they were being filmed. So it must have been like a documentary. He talks straight to the camera at the end after shooting Trejo in the head. And again, as we mentioned, I didn't remember exactly who Trejo was. And there's a brief exchange on the back of the chain gang truck where Otis is like, remember me? And Rondo Trejo is, no, you will, motherfucker. How about a line to help us remember him? It has been. How could you forget Danny Trejo? He's the same in everything. But I didn't know what he did to piss Otis off. Oh. Okay. Right, that's the key. Clearly, there was a way he said it. There was something that he did, this particular character did. There's a line Zombie said in the commentary that I almost took as his thesis for this film. He said that by coming back here, he liked it. He said, the characters are already established, so we don't have to waste time developing them. You can just get into it and take them to new places. 
So he doesn't want to waste time reminding you of stuff from the previous film, including who these characters are. I think he, he intends for you to either be intimately familiar with that first film or watch this as a double feature because he's not going to help you. Thanks for nothing there, zombie. And so Wolfie comes in here and helps Otis escape prison. And when we find out he's the half-brother of the Firefly family, it reminded me of, I think it's Scream 3, when they mentioned in the third sequel in a movie series, you always find a long-lost relative, right? <laughs> it absolutely is the case, and the man did add a lot of life to the movie, and at the end of the day, I'm happy Brake is here because he adds a little bit of life to the movie. I like Richard Brake. I have always liked Richard Brake since his very brief scene in Kingsman, and I loved him in 31. He was in Halloween 2 also, and here's something kind of nice. When Zombie was casting for Halloween 2 and looking for that role, Sid Haig said, why don't you look at Richard Brake? And so Haig introduced Zombie to Brake, and so it's kind of a handing of the torch in certain ways I see it as, but I agree. I think he brings a lot of life to this, a lot of fun, but what he doesn't bring is any type of connection. And at one point <laughs> in the movie, Baby and Otis are talking, they're like, there's just two of us left, and they actually have break there like... Am I not in the room? But truthfully, it is just the two of them left after that giant family from House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, funny that he wasn't around in that one, right? But honestly, I couldn't remember where I saw him before. And like halfway through the movie hit me. He was in Batman Begins. He was the guy, Joe Chill, who kills Batman's parents. Yes. But it took me like half the movie to figure that out because it's been a while since that one came out. So it took me a, a minute to get it. Yeah, this guy is never going to play the lead in a rom-com. He's never. usually going to play a bad guy. <laughs> he's been on Game of Thrones. I looked him up afterwards. He's been on Game of Thrones the last two years in makeup, heavy makeup. He's the uh, Night King. Oh. So when he comes on the scene and he does add that little bit of life, but it's also the problem of it's hard to shake the sequel when he is there. Kind of like John Lovitz comes in for the sequel of City Slickers 2. It's really hard to ignore somebody's here doing the same stuff, but they weren't here the last time. It's really difficult to shake it. The worst example of this is Beverly Hills Cop 3, where John Ashton wouldn't come back to play the cop, and so they got Hector Elizondo to obviously just say the exact same lines of dialogue, only it's not somebody you have any connection to. They're practically the same person, so it totally makes sense that they would do that. Uh, I think the worst is George Hamilton replacing Robert Duvall in Godfather 3, even though it was a much reduced part, but come on. Come on. Yeah, yeah that's bad too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a different part, but still. But here, this is one of the better ones because it reminds me of when Don Cheadle took over for Terrence Howard in Iron Man 2. It's like he comes in, he goes, it's me, I'm here, get over it, let's go. I mean, yeah. that's actually Cheadle's dialogue in Iron Man 2. I feel like that's what they're doing here, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's a stepbrother you've never heard of before, Wolfie, and moving on. <laughs> yep, yep. Now, Baby is still in prison, and we do get to see her parole hearing. <laughs> That guy had a hell of a cold, huh? Oh, that my God. I, I, I was trying to figure out if that was going to come into play at some point. Nope, he was just snotty for the sake of being snotty. Uh, you know, as an actor, they teach you to make choices, right? So his choice was to just keep playing with the tissue. No idea why. Why is this man playing with a tissue the whole streak in time? Is it a handkerchief? Is it a tissue? Who the fuck cares? Why is he doing it? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even pay attention. Oh my god, how could you not notice? It was every shot. It was like being trapped in the room with him. It was disgusting, and for no reason. Like, Marjorie's right. It should have had something to do with something. It was a horrible choice without any payoff whatsoever. It's almost like the actor was sick, 
and they just had to go with it. I thought he had a zit that was like bleeding and he was trying to make sure like it wasn't going to get all over the place. Like it was like he was dabbing it that much or something, you know? <laughs> and a bad cold. Yeah, something. It was so awful. And maybe this is something Zombie directed him to do. Zombie does love to have little details in every role. And so- not is not a detail. For all we know, he's like Brad Pitt with the eating in every scene. Maybe this guy has a tissue in every scene he's in. I don't know. <laughs> But I don't know that Baby should exactly be paroled. She's acting a little bit nuts there. Also, she was convicted of what? They said 30 life sentences or something like that, or a life sentence for everybody she killed. And five years later, she's up for parole. Where's the math on that? How is she possibly up for parole in five years? Well, 10 years. I imagine she also failed her five-year parole hearing. Oh, okay. Here is where we see D. Wallace, who, if I hadn't just rewatched Lords of Salem... I probably would not have recognized. It's the voice that really gives it away. I mean, here, Baby headbutts her and breaks her nose, so she has this nose piece on and this hair, and so her face is kind of hidden for most of the movie, but that voice is very distinctive. Yeah, it was totally her voice. I'm like, who is that lady? And I was just getting up to look at it, and you go, oh, it's Dee Wallace. I'm like, thank you! I thought it was Cherry Jones at first, who's a really great actress, if you know, if you're familiar with Cherry Jones. Dee Wallace has been working now for a long time, but yeah, it's hard to forget Dee Wallace once you realize it's her. I tend to think she tips her hand a little bit, like she indicates a little bit, but I liked what she was doing here is at least she had a point of view of her character, and she played that stronger than a lot of other people did. I'm not sure she hit a home run in everything she was doing, but at least she was going for something and conveying it more than a lot of other people were in this movie. I may be giving her a little bit too much credit based on what you hear, but I really appreciated what she was going for versus what a lot of other people were not doing. I don't know. It felt cliched. The lesbian prison guard at a women's prison who Mm -hmm. lusts after the prisoner and so abuses the prisoner. And you know what I got really tired of in this movie? And I have no problem with language. We've been doing this show long enough. People should know I have no problem with language. (laughs) But I really got sick of everybody in this film calling every woman bitch. And not because of, you know, feminist reasons, but because it's lazy at a certain point. If every line D. Wallace says ends with bitch, it's like, can't you come up with another word? Say cunt, say something. Well, we'll see, Arnie, in 1988, we hadn't come up with all these great insults for women yet. Right. So they had to rely on bitch. (laughs) And at one point, a character says, don't call me bitch. And he goes, I'll call you whatever I want to. Bitch. Look, Arnie, I'm not saying she's going to get an Oscar. What I'm saying is she's making choices. I greatly agree. She's doing a lot of cliche stuff, but at least she's doing something. If you watch the warding guy is already giving crap to for looking like he's stuck in some sort of 70s variety show. Yeah, what is with that mustache? He's not doing anything but having the costume convey the character. At least she is doing something or trying to do something resembling character motivation. At least, and that's what I'm trying to say is later on, a lot of people in Mexico actually are doing more stuff than the script is led. They're taking what they're having and, and making choices and doing things. Where in the first half of this movie, Richard Brake and Dee Wallace are the only ones who are, at least in my mind, trying to do something different. Or at least trying to do something of character, semblance of character. I'd agree with you. I would say that during the first half of this film, Brake is perhaps the most standout character. I have loved Sherry Moon Zombie in the previous two films. Here, the intent was, there's going to be a dropped line of dialogue that goes absolutely nowhere. Later on, Otis is going to say to Wolfie, 
I think she's gotten more insane or she's gone off the deep end. So I think that's what we're getting here. I have two problems. The first is some of this sexy baby doll stuff worked when Sherry Moon Zombie was 29. It doesn't work as well when she's 49. But by the same token, now I see her in that mother firefly role, you know, the overage crazy person but maybe that's how she's playing it i kind of liked karen black in that first film i thought she played crazy and that's all she was playing you know you have a sexy baby girl kind of thing i guess i don't think she looked bad no 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 it just doesn't work for someone who's got laugh lines kind of thing i mean but she wasn't doing necessarily the baby talk voice it's like she was just batshit crazy, and I felt she was pretending, but it turns out she wasn't. She just, like, went even more nuts. What the fuck was with the cat ballet? I was hoping you could tell me, because I had no idea. <laughs> At one point, she's alone in her cell, looks out the window, and sees a person in a rent-a-cat outfit. It almost looks like the cat in the hat minus the hat doing ballet. <laughs> One of the other problems I have with this film is Zombie goes down a lot of divergent roads that don't pay off. For example, all the stuff at the beginning with the crowd screaming, free the three and people loving Otis. Do any of them come back? Do any of them assist in this breakout? Do they hook up with any of them after getting broken out because they had this correspondence the way Manson had with people outside? No, it never goes anywhere. This ballet cat never goes anywhere. Well, I think it was more of a delusion, but why is it that particular delusion, right? Why is it that she's seeing uh, a furry do a ballet? I don't... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, see, the way I kind of look at this is, you're right, he just dropped a lot of things, and I guess you could say the Free the Three fans, everything at the beginning, were maybe atmosphere to show you that. But by the exact same token, during this baby in prison bit they're gonna talk on the news about bounty hunters and we're gonna see two bounty hunters stumble upon otis and wolfie in the woods i guess they're just living out there again like the movie badlands they're just living out there in the woods and these two bounty hunters come along there's no more bounty hunters the rest of this movie i didn't think they were bounty hunters i thought they're just people out hunting that discovered them no they're bounty hunters for sure because they're both loaded to the gills with weapons and they have the attitude of they're not going to let them go because they said on the radio if you see them do not approach these people they're dangerous and of course they do exactly that but they were just outmatched and it's also a way to get us some blood right people who are going to a rob zombie movie they're going to want the kills and again this is kind of a reaction against Lords of Salem, where you didn't get that. He's going to give us blood. We're going to see these two killed, and Otis is going to get to peel the skin off the face like he's done in all the movies. And at the same time, Baby is going to have to kill two giant lesbians in prison. She gets set up by Dee Wallace, who's trying to kill her in the prison. Throughout this whole time, when they're going back and forth, they keep going back to Baby, then back to the two brothers, and back to Baby. Back and forth, this is the first time I felt a deliberate pace to the movie as well. I didn't understand why we're going back and forth and back and forth so much. I felt it was edited strange. I I wondered why did they just stay with the brothers for a bit. Later on, too, when they get to the house, they keep going back to Baby, then back to the house, and back to Baby. This is the part in the movie where it really felt that he didn't have a solid way to tell these two stories at the same time. And it kind of started to drag on me a a bit. Yeah, and I really thought too much time was spent focusing on Baby in prison. 
it took way too long to get to this whole warden where they kill everybody in the warden's house. We spent way too much time there. And it could have been because it was grating and annoying. I mean, Dee Wallace was the shining bit in that because she just is a great actress. But way too long on that. And I got so bored with the baby stuff that by the time she got out of there, there was still over an hour left of the movie. And it just seemed like it took 90 minutes. Okay, let me cut to the chase on this. Because yes, we can talk about the kidnapping of the family, and I'm sure we will talk about the killing of the family, and we gotta bring up Clint Howard. But my question is, what is this movie about? Hmm. Well, when you said cut to the chase, you sure do, don't you? Because I have, uh, the word is pointless. I have, (laughs) I found this to be a pointless. There's really no reason for this to happen. But then again, I started to think to myself, well, was there a point for the last two? Like, it was really a point. They told stories, whether or not I liked them as much as you two did, the other two actually told a story. Here, the word I have is meandering. I don't understand what's going on. Why are we visiting and why are we going back and forth? Get to a some sort of the reason we're here and we never did. I think the first film is a slasher film. The point is to scare and to truly horrify through the graphics and to be extreme and to be a throwback to that Texas Chainsaw. And I think it's coherent in that vision in that it escalates through the entire film to a point where you're comfortable and then you're not comfortable because it escalated too far. The second film is your classic Bandits on the Run film, right? I mean, there's been so many of those movies of the criminals trying to escape the law. The arc of that film is it starts with the police storming them, and it ends with them being killed, theoretically, by the police. It is one arc. Yes, it's a road trip movie. They have different stops on the road during that movie, one with Brian Posehn and one with the chicken fuckers. But (laughs) I feel like it's a coherent storyline from beginning to end, and it has a solid theme. Here, we're going to spend half the movie getting Baby out of jail. So is it a prison break movie? But then the next half of the film is them hanging out in Mexico. I don't understand the theme of this movie. I don't understand the point of this movie. What I see is zombie making brushstrokes that are similar in certain ways to what he did in Devil's Rejects. You know, like there are scenes here that remind me of the 2D fucking fruity scene in the last one when Baby wants to drive, things like that. But you brought these people back from the dead. There needs to be a major story to tell with them if they are resurrected like Christ, brought back upon the world. Maybe they are the Antichrist, but there needs to be something fucking powerful to justify it, and there's really not. If you aren't getting off on the reunion of these three on screen after 15 years... I think there's nothing here. Well, yeah. I mean, it's not overstated, though. I mean, like, they have how many sequels in Friday the 13th that, you know, they come back because they're trying to make some coin, right? So, like, the guy comes back. But here, it's been so long. It's been anticipated. The passage of real-life time makes that, what your point is, I think, have more weight to it. You know what I mean? Because, obviously, you can do sequel after sequel to a horror franchise. This is not a series that did that, right? They stopped at the second one for a reason. Two reasons. And one of them is that all the characters were really dead. But come back to what Marjorie just said. It was an hour until they finally sprung her from prison. And when they get to Mexico, 
nothing happens, right? So they literally hang out. Maybe they were going for a Butch Cast and the Sundance Kid vibe. I was waiting for them to like, you know, have a bunch of people outside. It's going to be a big shootout, like at the end of the last movie. It just seems that one after another, ideas were brought up, characters were brought up, and nothing really happened. And it never stopped being annoying that we're wasting time. This movie is about 25 to 30 minutes longer than the other two. But there's no real reason for that. There's no reason this movie needs to be two hours long. None. No, and Zombie on the commentary is like, oh, I love these scenes that I just, I let the movie breathe, and I don't just cut from thing to thing. I'm like, it's called editing, do it. <laughs> yeah, honestly. <laughs> you said there's callbacks to the last movie. I saw a lot of them. Uh, actually, there was a callback at watching House of a Thousand Corpses. Chris Hardwick's character says he can't drive at night because it has an eye thing. They brought that whole thing back now uh, in this yeah, movie. Yeah, I noticed that too with- uh... With Wolfie, right? And mm -hmm. uh, But with the warden in his house with the family- that's reminiscent, of course, of the hotel room scene with Brian Posehn in the last movie with the woman from Three's Company. Priscilla Barnes. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I'm looking for some horror to come in. I don't think we get it. Here's the thing. I like what Richard Brake is bringing, but what Richard Brake brings isn't menace. It's kind of a silliness. Otis is going to go off on these spiels about how he's the devil and people want the devil and Baby's just kind of crazy and giggly, but Brake, he seems kind of down to earth and not homicidal. The thing about Brake, I feel that he might have acting skills that the other don't have. Like, nothing against Bill Mosley. He's a very nice, soft-spoken man when you talk to him in person. He's not at all like Otis. But I just don't think that Bill Mosley has the same range as Richard Brake does. I think Richard Brake is a much more commanding presence. Otis comes in, and I expect he's going to stab a bitch. There I go. I'm doing the films thing. I'm calling mm -hmm. him bitch. But <laughs> Richard Brake comes in, and I get the feeling he's a bit more of a pragmatist and less of a psychopath. I don't see Richard Brake's Wolfie here wearing somebody's skin on his face. No, I agree. He seems just like the redneck brother. And so here, when they're kidnapping the warden's family, I get that he'll do what needs to be done for family. He's trying to rescue his half-brother's sister, so I guess a half-sister. I don't know. Mother Firefly slept around a lot. But, <laughs> but it's really Otis that I feel is the drive and the menace here. But yeah, we get this replay where they're going to suggest sexual assault on the two women. We're going to make one of the women strip down. And then Clint Howard? <laughs> I, I I have no words. This is just like Brian Posehn getting killed. I'm sorry. The clown was just unnecessary. He wasn't entertaining. He wasn't strange. Why Clint Howard? Why did a clown show up at the warden's house? At no point, I listened to the second time I watched this film, when I watched it on video for this review, at no point does he go, oh, this isn't little Bobby's house. What is he doing? Now, I thought maybe it's an homage to Captain Spaulding because he was a clown and they wanted to put a clown back in the movie. But- it's completely random. He knocks on the door as a, what, a clown gram? Was he there for, like, someone sent me a clown as a funny gag? Is he like a children's clown? But he clearly had the wrong house. But why a clown? And then when Otis kills him, he goes, I fucking hate clowns. Now, I did hear in the commentary that was an ad lib, but that's an ad lib that should have been cut because, hey, Captain Spaulding <laughs> just fucking died. <laughs> right. Well, also, didn't you say, though, in the last podcast, you mentioned that he and Sid Haig in the movie was jockeying for who's leader of the family. So I thought that was a callback to how he felt about Spaulding. 
But again, I might be giving the film a little too much credit. I, I think I, you are. Yeah. Yeah, I just think it was... A lot of this movie was ad lib. Ah. A lot of this movie was zombie saying, okay, guys, have some crazy conversation. And Richard Brake's like, all right, I'm going to talk about starting a porn company. (laughs) (laughs) And that is how a lot of this went. And zombies usually very tight to script. But here, I think especially Brake. Brake's the one who talked the most about ad libbing. I think it's because all the dialogue was written for Spalding and zombie didn't write new dialogue. He's like, all right, here's the way the scene needs to go. Brake. Go do something. Okay. The clown was completely random. It's Clint Howard, which is also random because he's so recognizable, right? I didn't recognize him. I thought it was one of the actors who played one of the clowns in 31. Oh. There's a lot of repeat casting here. The Warden was in 31 and Lords of Salem. The little person later on was in 31. And there were a number of killer clowns in 31. I thought this was one of the killer clowns. I did not get Clint Howard out of it. Even in the behind the scenes features, it's weird because he's in makeup. And I know it's Clint Howard, but I just don't hear that Clint Howard voice. And I don't see that giant Clint Howard noggin. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And... The warden is way too willing to agree to break out baby. Well, what the hell was that? I mean, what the <laughs> hell was that? What kind of plan is that? I have your entire family here and your friends in this house. Everyone's getting abused. You're going to go back there. You're going to do this A, B, and C. You're going to break her out. You're going to break all these rules. And he agrees to do it. And he goes along with it 100%. Now, here's my question. Never once did Otis say, don't tell anybody. Don't call any cops. None of that bullshit cliche stuff. This movie's full of cliches, but not the one of, and no cops. None of that, right? And he goes back to the thing. He snorts cocaine. He A lot of cocaine. I mean, he's got a mountain of cocaine there. He did. But my problem is, he didn't call anybody? I mean, I understand. <laughs> your wife and your friends are all tied up. I get that. There's a dead clown in your room we have to talk about in a second. But why wouldn't you tell one person, just one person, call the cops. I got some people in my house. He was let out of this horrible situation, and he doesn't tell anybody absolutely that did not make any sense whatsoever because you had to figure in a situation like that you're dead anyway so it really doesn't matter if you tell anybody because as soon as you get back to the house with her he's gonna kill all of you yeah your only hope is to have a SWAT team surround the house then maybe you'll get your loved ones out as part of a hostage negotiation but that is the only chance and it's not like anybody's watching the warden. Baby doesn't know this is happening. Nobody is keeping tabs on the warden. The warden doesn't have a big Zach Morris cell phone that he has to check <laughs> in with Otis with. What kills me here is also that the writing of this movie thought this was a plan that was good enough for the movie. But the movie was smart enough to realize, the warden's smart enough to realize that if I go and let Baby out, she's going to kill me. And Otis says, you're right, I'll write you a note. So he's smart enough to realize that she will kill him, but he's not smart enough to pick up a phone? (laughs) I don't understand. This movie hadn't already lost me. This was the final straw. This plan is cockamamie. And the fact that he went along with it so willingly. Now, I try to put myself in my head. What if my family, my loving family, was in this situation? Would I have called the authorities? Would I risk their lives by calling the authorities? And I don't know. It's a really tough question. I'm not, it's really hard to actually get myself there, right? But I like to think that maybe I would write a note to somebody or something or try to get the situation fixed. But there's no lines about you have an hour. Nothing that I recall that was an ultimatum whatsoever. Only thing was you get her out and you bring her here. And I just don't understand why, A, they would let him out of there and, B, that he would go back. I just don't get it. I don't either. It's... Because it's in the script. Yeah. I think the overarching theme of this so far is I don't get it and why. 
But Dee Wallace does get what we know is coming to her. I mean, this is a horror movie trope as you set up a bad person. Like, remember the teacher who hit Chucky when throwing it in the closet and then Chucky came to life and killed the teacher in Child's Play 2? And so here, you know, she's going to be like, I'm not leaving you, bitch. And so Baby's going to kill her and then dress like a guard and walk right out. But then Baby shows up, and of course the family's going to die. But they did a House of a Thousand Corpses callback here. When they're doing all the murders, they're playing this anachronistic song. And I'm like, this kind of sounds like the song, remember in House of a Thousand Corpses when they played I Remember You while they were killing Walton Goggins and all of that? And it turns out this is a song from the same singer, Slim Whitman. He was intentionally doing that callback by having another Slim Whitman song as Otis and Baby killed the family. I rolled my eyes. I was like, this again? (laughs) I mean, come on, this has been done to death at this point. And so I did not enjoy the callback. For like House of a Thousand Corpses, that's kind of a nice little Easter egg. But I just am so tired of that kind of trope. And Brock, I was thinking about you. Now, I don't know. Did you see the rated cut or the unrated cut of this movie? I don't know, honestly. I think I saw the rated R version because the version I saw when she gets back, the dead clown's on the couch, the man's on the floor, and the wife of the man on the floor is sitting there naked and she's all cut up and clearly some bad things have happened to her since last we saw the family in the house. That was uh, creepy in itself that meanwhile, when they were at the prison, this poor woman got beaten, raped, or a combination of the two. There's only like 40 seconds difference between rated and unrated. Oh. And if you look at moviecensorship.com, most of it is literally two frames here, a frame there. But most of the 40 seconds is right here with an extended amount by a few seconds of the naked woman all bloody running down the streets and a few extra seconds of baby smiling maniacally and flashing her knife around. I watched both. The commentary was on the rated version, and then we watched the unrated version, Marjorie. Okay. So either way, I did not notice a huge difference, but I was thinking of you, Brock, because things do go too far, and in Halloween and the House of a Thousand Corpses, you said zombie takes it too far. Yeah. And I was specifically thinking of you when that naked woman is running down the street in slow motion with Sherry Moon chasing after her with a knife. Yep. And her booths were swinging back and forth, right? And it's just, this is a really sad scene. But honestly, at this point in the movie, I was half checked out. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, I agree with you. It was going a little too far. You know, it's a horror movie, and she was running for her life, and this crazy woman's following her. And then obscurely, an old lady is there sitting in a a lawn chair in front of her house watching the whole thing go down, and Baby doesn't kill her. Yeah, I thought for sure that old lady was going to get it. So you're saying things go too far, and perhaps they do, really, but with that scene, it was kind of just a little bit... uh, I felt really bad for that woman. I really did. Now, to clarify, I'm not saying it went too far. I was just curious if this was the too far for you. (laughs) Oh, I honestly, Arnie... um, I felt really bad. For them. When we got back to that scene and we saw that woman on that couch, I felt really bad for that woman. I couldn't tell if the actress was uncomfortable or not, but she was conveying that I don't want to be here. 
Now, it fit perfectly with the character, but when she ran away, I did, I did feel bad for that actress, but, you know, she's in this movie and she she chose to do that, but it seemed to be in league with the actual movie, I guess. It reminded me a lot of the scene with the maid from Devil's Rejects, where she runs out of the room, but she's wearing the face, and that's all in slow motion as she's being chased by one of the victims there, and here, Zombie said this is actually based off something that really happened to him. That when he was a kid, some naked guy was bleeding and completely naked and just running down the street. And everybody just was like, what did we just see? And so he was trying to bring that kind of surreality to it with the granny seeing all of this. I see. But why wouldn't baby, she goes back to the house, yeah, some ladies tell me you got to get out of here. Why wouldn't, no, I'm not advocating for this, but if she's already killing people and she kills random people like that poor guy coming up at the gas station, why on earth wouldn't she just kill the old lady and like give herself a few minutes to, you know, I don't get it. I mean, she's also running through a neighborhood chasing a naked woman. More than one person saw her. She could say it that way, not some old lady saw me. Or maybe she said some old bitch saw me. I don't remember. That seems to be the word <laughs> of the movie, right? So maybe she said that. But clearly she was focused on that old lady who waved to her versus... Everyone else she ran past trying to hunt down this woman in broad daylight. I think Otis would have killed her, but I think this is trying to show how crazy Baby is. Is that she's going to come back and she's not even in a hurry to run from the cops that have obviously been called. She's going to be like, what's with the clown? Instead of hurrying her ass up. I think you're giving him way too much credit at this point, and I'm a big Rob Zombie fan. Are you still? I don't know if I am. I I guess I was, but you you often will dissect the minute details and try to give the filmmaker credit, and here they deserve none. But now that they've escaped, when I was in the theater, I didn't have any idea how much time had passed. When watching this at home, I did hit pause, because once they're leaving the warden's house, we're 55 minutes into the movie, there's a full hour left to go, and I'm like, what story is there to tell? And this is where, Brock, you used the word meandering. Mm -hmm. They're going to stop at a hotel for a little while and almost have a deep conversation. This is where Baby's like, is it worth it? What's the point of it? And I think she means life. And Otis cheers her up by saying, there's lots more people we can kill. <laughs> I looked at my watch at this point and realized, okay, they're finally all together. Holy crap, there's an hour left in this movie. <laughs> it took them an hour to get together, and now we have an hour more, and they go to Mexico. Let's see what they do there. They do nothing there. Now, Zombie compares this scene to the scene when they get to the whorehouse in Devil's Rejects. They get there, they're supposed to think life is good, they're partying up with some hookers, and just relaxing, not knowing bad people are coming for them. But this feels like it's a lot longer than in Devil's Rejects. This is about a half an hour of Baby entering a knife-throwing contest for reasons. Uh, yeah. This whole half hour could have been cut. They probably just need a little bit of background scenes there. But I didn't need to see them partying. I didn't need to see them with the hookers. They should have either cut a half hour from this or cut the previous hotel scenes way down. Well, the previous hotel scenes were there so she could kill a guy in a Mexican costume to inspire her to go to Mexico. Yeah, but 
There's no payoff in that. None. And then there's no scene of them getting across the border. I'm wondering, how are they getting across the border? This is 1988. I thought maybe the free, the three people would come back and help them get across the border. Here's another thing, Arnie. In The Devil's Rejects, they had that crazy William Forsythe guy chasing after them, trying to catch them out of revenge. A major element that's missing, even though they're doing a lot of repeat beats from The Devil's Rejects here, nobody is coming after them until they tip off Aquarius later on, but it's so weak. At this point in the movie, when baby's broken out of jail, they should be finding the house full of dead people. There should be cops coming after them as well with some stakes here at some point. So them crossing the border, absolutely right. The fact that she's out of jail and these guys are free should be all over the news and they should not be able to cross Mexico at all. Now, I understand I'm adding logic into an illogical situation, but the other movies had logic. All of it. Even in the House of a Thousand Corpses, there was logic in there. There's no logic to how these three got out of the country when they should be, be tons and tons of cops. Remember I said earlier, I thought they're going to go to Mexico to try to set up a Butch Cassidy kind of ending where a whole bunch of people are going to be overwhelming them at the end. But not one person is looking for them in the States. And by chance, someone recognizes them in Mexico. It makes zero sense they were able to get there. None. The fact there's no cops coming after them, and there's cops in the first two movies for a good reason. Mind-blowing. Yeah, it makes absolutely zero sense, but you can just walk freely into Mexico. No one cares. You don't need an ID. There's no border. You literally just walk across. We've walked into Mexico before, and they don't care. It's getting back into the United States that's the problem. But you're absolutely right that there's no element of danger for them when they're on the run other than they have to hightail it out of there because she killed that guy by the soda machine. There's no hunt. Nothing. It's like or someone's telling you a really boring story, and they just can't get to the end, and you're waiting for the interesting part. The one thing I do like here, though, is Richard Edson really injects some new life into this movie as the town police, fireman, mayor, coroner. I also thought there might be a fistful of dollars callback because there we have the Undertaker and here he's going to be getting three coffins ready and Eastwood had told the Undertaker there, get three coffins ready. Oh, I mean four. Sure. Yeah, I get you. You know, we've reviewed him a couple of times. Recently, he was in Do the Right Thing. He was Spike in Super Mario Brothers. I will never not think of him as the parking garage car thief in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, that's why he looks familiar. Relax, man. I'm a professional. Professional what? Yeah, I recognize him instantly. I'm like, oh, it's that guy! I like that guy! He's great. Yeah, and here... Again, a lot of ad-libbing. Zombie said he just went off script with a lot of this rambling. But I love his rambling. I love his delivery. I think he is a whole lot of fun in this part. And of course he's going to betray them. I thought he injected a lot of life too. He was doing, again, he was doing a lot with a little. And I always enjoy watching actors who do that. I, again, blame Zombie. The actors who are doing really well here are the actors who are bringing more than the script gave them, and the rest who are doing what the script gave. And I feel bad for Bill Mosley, but I like Bill Mosley in the scenes where he has to react to Richard Brake, and you could tell he's not doing Otis. When he's doing Otis, he puts on the crazy eyes, and he's got this slanted delivery. But when Richard Brake is going on and on about starting a pornography company, you could tell that's just Bill Mosley trying to figure out how to react. You just get the, a Bill Mosley standard voice coming out of that Charles Manson beard and wig. 
I also liked seeing Sebastian Pancho Moller. He was, again, he was sick head in 31, the surprisingly effective Nazi killer, meaning he is a Nazi who killed, not he killed Nazis. Oh, I, I yeah. T- thank you for clarifying. I thought you meant the latter, not the former. No, he, you know, he was not collecting scalps for Brad Pitt. <laughs> but here he's playing a totally different role, whereas in that one, he's a psychopathic killer. Here he is sweet on baby. That's going to end well for him, huh? Well, here's the thing. She actually befriends him. They actually become friends. He's like the only person that talks that much to Baby who does not end up dead. Well, he does end up dead. Yeah, he ends up dead. Not by her hand. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. That She didn't kill him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I kind of thought from his side, at least, it was a romantic relationship, but she equates him to Tiny, you know, from the first movie, the big kind of gentle brother. The leather face of the family. Yes. Yes. I mean, they go on for too long, but I do like those scenes of him and her. They're far more touching than the scenes of Otis with two hookers. <laughs> yeah. And when, I'm sorry, this is like the worst gang ever. They're the Black Satans and they show up wearing lucha masks and wearing white suits, which are going to get messy in dusty Mexico, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, you're killing people, so... You're talking like a tide nightmare here. But they were the worst gang ever. I mean, they have a, t- a terrible name. They're wearing terrible outfits and they can't kill anybody. Why can't they be Diablo Negro? <laughs> no, they're Black Satans. The Black Satans, which is, it doesn't roll off the tongue. It's awkward. It's clunky to say. El Diablo Negro. <laughs> what these guys are doing here is they're being set up for the end shootout, but. With a very tenuous connection to the Danny Trejo character earlier, I felt this whole thing, the word is tacked on. They found some kind of bullshit reason to have a shootout at the end because they realized they don't have any cops coming after them. So what are they going to do? I know, some more bounty hunters, revenge. It just felt like, oh my god, there's more to this. And it really, they introduced this character as something threatening, but as soon as Marjorie, as soon as she shows up with the mask on and the guys, there was absolutely no suspense to what was going to happen or how. It just did not play whatsoever. And the shootout is, I'll call it fine. I think some of the CGI effects are a little obvious, but overall it's fine. I like Baby with the bow and arrow that she stole. Her cultural appropriation. Totally. You know, and uh, what a great thing. She's like Merida from Brave. No, Arnie, you remember how we just watched Ram- the new Rambo movie and those guys came up from Mexico and Rambo was killing them off in the catacombs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking she was like Rambo with this arrow. But she wanted to be like Rambo. She came off more like Gizmo in <laughs> Gremlins 2. <laughs> it didn't quite work. I-, I honestly, the bow and arrow thing, I don't remember Baby being proficient. But I guess the axe-throwing scene, Arnie, is to prove that she has natural talent in the Native American arts of throwing axes and using bows and arrows, right? Why else would they possibly have her be so good, Hawkeye good, with a bow and arrow? Like, And that's amazing how she got right for the head and it went through. It's remarkable the accuracy and the tension she's able to get in that bow to get those arrows to go through people's skulls. In college, I took a semester of archery. Oh. It's hard. It's not as easy as just picking it up and going, boing, I'm Hawkeye. No. First of all, that string you're pulling, it's tight. It's hard to pull. It's not because it's got to launch the arrow. It's not just like a kid's arrow. Second, for women, it's really hard to do because you have anatomy that gets in the way. It's not conducive to what you're doing with this. And our teacher would tell us every time we complained that we couldn't do it right, he'd tell us stories about how in the past women archers would cut a breast off to get the better (gasps) aim. 
Oh my god. Yeah, because it gets in the way. You can't just pick it up and go, bing! It's hard, and I think throwing the axes is hard. I haven't done that battle axing. We don't have one in town yet. But I just don't think those are things you can just pick up and go, boing, hey, look, I did it. I'm awesome. Now, I understand we're putting an extreme amount of realism into an unrealistic movie, but that's also the fault of the movie, is that right now, if this movie had... We've talked about this a thousand times here, almost, you know, we've done almost a thousand episodes and now playing. We always say, if the movie has me and I'm engrossed in what's going on, I'm willing to give concessions like, yeah, okay, but this one, I'm nowhere near there right now with this movie. So when a woman who we have no knowledge of having bow and arrow skills has Rambo-type accuracy and the strength to do it, it just doesn't make any sense. Worse than that, it just kind of insults the audience's intelligence. And maybe it's meant to be fun, but since you haven't earned that fun at this point, up to this point, it's hard not to point out that this is one more unrealistic or crazy or harebrained or not well-thought idea in a movie full of them. The other point is someone who's literally batshit crazy was not going to have the mental faculties to do this. I mean, she seems to be lacking a lot of reasoning skills, cognitive skills, things like that. She seemed fine talking to Sebastian. The whole she's getting worse never went anywhere. I never really got anything out of it. It never caused a problem. I got the impression that she actually knew what she was doing. Yes, she's crazy and she's nuts, but she turned on the normalcy when she was getting picked up in that car the first time, etc. So this whole movie, she's been going crazier and crazier. As Arnie was saying, they, they try to make that happen. But she seemed to have plenty of ability to be a normal person, if you will. I, we know she's nuts and she's crazy, but I think she's not dumb. I think she's smart. I really did think, though, that maybe we were seeing an evolution of her character. She was asking, what's it all about? Well, the only person she has, she said, there's just two of us. And there was her and Otis. I kind of thought maybe we'd see her mature a little bit and take Sebastian on the road with them. You know, maybe he'd become a killer with them. But no, Sebastian is slated to go like a cow to the slaughter. He saves her life, though, which was a nice little moment for him, right? And she would not have gotten out of there alive had he not done that. Yeah, he sacrificed himself basically for all of them. For no good reason other than maybe they're the only people that have been nice to him. That's that's exactly what I thought, Marjorie. Because if you notice, when he was on screen talking to her, the music changed drastically to something softer and, I dare say, more romantic. Oh, I did not notice that. Hmm. But yeah, we get this big shootout that ends in a really poorly filmed or poorly staged machete fight between Otis and one of the Black Satans. It wasn't the leader guy? It wasn't Aquarius? No, it was Aquarius's henchman. Did they not have the coverage? Did they run out of time? You can barely even see. It's so rapid cut. I barely see the knives. I just see them dodge. The sword fight was inconsequential. It was strange. They, In fact, they have bows and arrows and they have sword fights. You brought a machete to a gunfight. It just seemed really strange to me. Uh, it would have been better if at least they had knives. I don't think we've ever seen machetes in this series yet, have we? Well, we've also never been in Mexico. <laughs> No, I mean, I mean, like, it's not a weapon of, you know, bows and arrows and machetes are usually in sequels, you, you stick to what, you know, they have guns, they have knives, machetes and bows and arrows just was weird to me. Yes, if it was uh, foils, like epées, it'd be much, much more strange, right? But they tried something different, it didn't work. The threads holding House of a Thousand Corpses to Devil Rejects to Three from Hell are frayed and very thin. It's basically just name only. You could pick up one and not watch the others and be absolutely fine. 
But true to fashion, and when you reboot things nowadays, you always make sure you have a window at this point to make sure you can come back. The three of them live, and they walk off to have a sequel if the audience money allows. Should they have? I mean, not even what we think about this movie, but if you brought them back from the dead, and they came back from the dead just to kill the warden and his wife and his friend and his wife, and then go to Mexico and fight a cartel... Shouldn't they maybe have died? Well, they died last time, so you think you should die this time too? If they bring them back, then they come back from another miraculous death? Is that what you're saying? I don't know. I I just, I'm asking. I was surprised they lived, (laughs) but I was also surprised they did nothing of value when they (laughs) came back to life. Yeah, I mean, there was no struggle. There was no suspense in any of this. None, none whatsoever. So I think we've all done this already, but... Let's just keep true to form. Marjorie, Arnie, do you recommend Three from Hell? Marjorie. Oh, boy. That's kind of a loaded question. I'm going to start out by saying no. And I want you to hear my reasons out on this. Is it's There's nothing here. It was completely unnecessary. There was no point to it. This was the perfect example of gratuitous filmmaking. I don't know who was clamoring for the return of this trio. I don't think anybody was. I don't think anybody's clamoring for more Fireflies. They were unique and different when we had the first movie, but that was gone with Devil's Rejects, and it's certainly gone with Three from Hell. It's not even the same three, and it's not even the same motives or same behaviors or anything like that. So I'm going to say this is a big not recommend. I can't put anything else through that. Arnie. The reason I went back and rewatched all of Rob Zombie's films is because I had a big question when I watched this in theaters. Is this movie really bad? Or have I changed in 10 years since I last saw Devil's Rejects? Because this feels so much like Devil's Rejects in so many ways, but how could I enjoy Devil's Rejects and find this to be so utterly dull and pointless? And going back and rewatching Devil's Rejects, I didn't like it as much as I thought I did. Listening to that podcast, I listed a lot of complaints I had with that movie. My fear was, without having listened to that podcast, my complaint about The Devil's Rejects was, it's fine, but I really liked House of a Thousand Corpses and this isn't House of a Thousand Corpses. But no, that film has a lot of structural narrative and character issues, and those are compounded here. And worse, this movie looks cheap. So many of the scenes feel underlit, the sets just feel basic, and the fact that they don't have scenes like them crossing the border, but yet this movie is so long, we're missing just basic transitions and things. I have changed as a film viewer in 10 years, but even 10 years ago, I'd have known that this movie is really terrible. And again, I say, if you bring somebody back from the dead, they better do something. The only person I know of who came back from the dead, theoretically, is Jesus, and he saved all of mankind. (laughs) So, why are these back from the dead? You had to have had a story to tell. Zombie didn't have a story to tell. He wanted to hang out with some friends on a set and get paid by Lionsgate for doing so. Great, but don't make me watch it. But the $10,000 question for me was, which was the worst movie? This or Lords of Salem? And having watched both twice now, I can say, on the second viewing, Three from Hell was actually worse than it was on the first viewing. And on the second viewing, 
Lords of Salem was a little bit better than it was the first time around. And to be perfectly fair, neither one of them is House of the Dead 2 level shit. <laughs> they are professionally made. They're not Doom Annihilation. But yeah, I think I've got to say Three from Hell is Zombie's worst original film. Halloween 2, his worst film overall. Yeah, I think the word of the day is pointless. The only idea they had for this movie was, let's bring these people back. The script was lacking ideas. Rob Zombie, I've complimented in the past, with regardless of my issues with him as a filmmaker, I've always complimented him on, on his ability to have nice shots and good camera setups and show something interesting on the screen. That's gone here. The script was underwritten. The characters were underwritten. There was very little thought put into this except, hey, let's do this movie. And it's clear on the screen. It's just not there. Look, I'm not a huge fan of House of a Thousand Corpses. I like Devil's Rejects more. This one is just, I feel very confident in saying that this is just a waste of time. And it's a sad thing because we all know that Rob Zombie can do things well. He has talent. I just didn't see it on display here. There were some highlights. We've talked about those before, but I would suggest that they stop here. Unless they have a good idea, and if they have a good idea, that would be good. Even if it fails, even if we don't like that movie. We've watched a lot of bad movies here uh, now playing, but rarely do we see a movie that's just undercooked this much. A definite not recommend, uh, not worth anyone's time here. And the only good thing I could say about this is that we have a chance to come back literally 10 years later when we talk about on that first podcast about how divergent our point of views were on that movie. And then 10 years later, we come back to something like this and we're all together in the same place. It's amazing how now the three of us are in the exact same place because of this movie. Uh, we were not in the same place on that first podcast all those years ago. You said Zombie had inventive setups and camera angles and things. I kind of wonder if when that scene between Baby and Otis and Baby's like, is it all worth it? What are we doing this for? It feels a little midlife crisis-y. <laughs> and Rob Zombie is in his 50s. Listen, I still like his music and I still like some of his films, but his heyday is behind him, right? He still tours. He and Marilyn Manson did a huge tour between filming this movie and editing this movie. That's part of the reason this movie took so damn long to come out. And I know he's still playing to large crowds, but he doesn't put out that many discs anymore. His last one was good, but very short. It was like 38 minutes of music. And... His last couple movies, I liked 31, didn't like Lords of Salem, but 31 and this especially, it feels like he's putting his career on cruise control and just going along with it because he can or because he doesn't know what else to do. But I don't feel as a musician or as a filmmaker, he has anything left to say. Well, maybe he's, uh, maybe the word is uninspired. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know the guy. I, I just know what I'm watching on the screen. And I just know that whatever I was complimenting him before in movies that I may or may not have liked all that much, I was always, always able to compliment the man for the talents that he does have. And unfortunately, I didn't see enough of those on display here. And that's a shame because this one was uh, just was hard to watch this one after a while. You're just like, come on, get on with it. Just get on with it. Have a reason for this. Even if I don't like a movie, at least you can get through it based on what the movie was set up. Nothing was set up here at all that was worthwhile to follow through. There's like very little through lines at all set up at all. So it was very difficult to actually want to watch or finish this movie. You know, and it wasn't even 
nice to look at. I have enjoyed, I think it was you, Brock, that said, you know, he's he's got a good eye for certain things. He kind of shook up the horror world when he came out with House of Thousand Corpses and we did Halloween remake. And he kind of set the path for people to remake the classic horror films of our childhood or near childhood. And he did radically different things. And here there was nothing different. The only thing he did was in his movies, he's very fond of using the sideways wipe a few times, and he's carried this on, but this one had nothing spectacular. There was nothing to grab even your eyes. No split screens either. Remember, he'd do yeah. split screens a lot. Yeah, nothing like well, that. He did that here. He had like that mirror screen while they were all dancing in Mexico. That's a callback from the House of a Thousand Corpses. He did that there too. But I'm talking about the actual split screens, like not as much as Thomas Cronenfeer, but you know, it's like, like like actually half and half of the screen was uh, all over that first movie, and it was really fun and inventive. It was a lot of fun. Nothing like that here. Nothing. No, and I have never in my life walked out of a film. And I know some people think that's insane because they walk out of films all the time. But I have never walked out of a film for quality reasons. This is the closest I've ever come because I was so damn bored and I knew I'd have to watch it again. That was the worst part of being so bored the first time is knowing that this was going to come out on video and I'd watch it for this review. And the audience was cheering at some of the kills, but I think they were grasping at straws for whatever they could get. (laughs) Because they wanted a movie that this wasn't. They were not very enthusiastic about it when they left the theater. Neither was I. And as for his future, Zombie says he has no plans to do anything else with the Firefly clan, but his mind could change next year or 10 years from now. He'll see how it goes, see how he feels, but he thinks that these three are a great trio and he could do more and they could cause more destruction, but it's probably the end of the road. I'm really hoping it's the end of the road because, man, it's amazing how he could take a franchise that I loved so much and still love that first movie and make me turn on it here. So hopefully it's the end of the road for the Firefly clan, but clearly not the end of the road for us at Now Playing. Arnie, what is coming up next here at Now Playing? Well, we are in the midst of, this is week two of six new movie reviews coming in a very short span. Next Tuesday, Marjorie Stewart and I are going to be back revisiting another franchise that we reviewed that same summer of 2009, Terminator, as we talk Terminator Dark Fate. Can you believe Terminator Salvation is 10 years old? No, I can't. And last Friday, we also came out with our review of Zombieland Double Tap, and that's another new release. If you want to hear that, that was the end of our Silver Level Donation Series. You can go to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate, find out how to support this show, keep it ad-free, keep independent podcasting alive, and get up to 20 bonus podcasts. And finally, this Friday, I referenced it several times during this podcast, it feels like an app time we're going to be reviewing badlands for patrons so if you are a patron at nowplayingpatron.com of ten dollars or more you're getting yet another bonus review we're over 30 bonus reviews for the patrons now reviewing a patron request of this early 70s martin sheen sissy spacex crime film you know badlands is like the wire that anyone's ever seen it says, you gotta see this, you gotta see it. But most people haven't seen it. And I have not seen Badlands yet. So I will be watching it to listen along with the review with you guys. Because I have always been, it's always on that list of, oh, I'll get around to it, I'll get around to it. But I always forget. 
now I have my reason to watch it finally, and I will be uh, looking forward to your show after I see the movie. So we thank you all for coming back to this retrospective series. If you have not heard our other episodes in the series, we encourage you to go to the archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com. There you can find these two other shows. Plus, gosh, we have every series you can possibly think of at this point, or at least it feels that way, over at our archive section. You, something for everyone there. So please check us out there. If you like our show, please go to social media and give us all sorts of kudos there. Please go to iTunes, give us five-star review, help us out with the show. As Arnie said, independent podcasting is still very much a thing. We were there at the beginning. We would continue to love your support and how you come back week after week. And so thank you so much for all that you do for us. And Brock, you're going to be joining us again twice, not too long from now, in December. Yes. Another series coming back from the grave, Black Christmas. <laughs> I can't believe it. I cannot believe that. It was supposed to be like a thing to fill in two weeks. I can't believe we're doing a third Black Christmas review. And of course, yes, I'm coming back for the patron show for Flash Gordon. Flash! Ah! Savor of the universe! I'm looking forward to reviewing that uh, very much for our friends here at Now Playing. It's going to be a blast. So thanks again for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. Got that bitch. Um, I think we should think about rolling out of here soon. Okay, let's go. Let's, let's go. go. Okay. Shit. Let's go. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Now Playing's House of a Thousand Corpses retrospective series. Are you fucking crying? I ain't crying. I got a piece of fucking skull in my eyes. Shit hurts. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Thanks, baby. I had a really good time. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can listen to our other installments, as well as our other retrospective series covering Friday the 13th, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, The Avengers Films, James Bond, and many more at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Are you done trying to scare me? And also come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another new movie review. <laughs> I feel like we're all really getting to know each other now. Want 375 more Now Playing reviews? Get the Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Arnie, Stewart, Jacob, and Marjorie reviewed 125 different movies, each getting three recommends or not recommends. The ebook is available now, and the print book will be shipping soon. Find details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. Read this. I assume you could read. You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. I'm just a clown dancing for the fucking man. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. All right, hippie. Hand over the cash box and I might eat your brains inside your skull. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Here, keep the chain and go get yourself a new name, Goobra. You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. 
Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our host to review. Find the details on our website. Live inside your head. I live inside your head. I do. I live in your head. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I bet all the girls want to fuck you. Associate produced by Jason. You know, I mean, I know he's a bad man and he's done some bad things, but like, I date him. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. This is my death factory and you are the product. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Last stutter, bitch. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You wouldn't know the truth if I crammed it down your fucking throat. The truth is the truth. The truth is a fucking knife. Cuts deep and it cuts both ways. Which end of the buck knife are you holding? The handle or the blade? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Why, you ask? Why is not the question. How? Now, that is a question worth examining. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Better you leave here with your head still full of kitty cats and puppy dogs. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Don't we make you laugh? Aren't we fucking funny? Wait a minute. You're telling me that only at horror cons they do this now? Because you know what this means, right? I can totally get a picture of myself and Sam Jones will wear the freaking Flash Gordon t-shirt and I'll be able to get a picture with Flash. Oh my God, that'd be so awesome. Okay, Brock, just yeah. just to fill you in, like San Diego last summer, you yes. could go for a $20 cover and he was the bartender wearing a Flash t-shirt. Oh, that just ruins it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> Hold on. I think he'd like come and perform for your son's birthday party. Well, well, I saw Ted too, right? Or whatever that was, and Ted 1 or whatever which one he was in. So Both. yeah, clearly he has time on his hands. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Five years later, she's up for parole. Where's the math on that? How is she possibly up for parole in five years? Well, ten years. I imagine she also failed her five-year parole hearing. Oh, I think that okay. every five years you just get a parole hearing if Ocean's Eleven is right. <laughs> yes. Uh, all your knowledge of the legal system comes from Ocean's Eleven. How many times did, did Morgan Freeman go through a parole hearing in Shawshank, Arnie? That's, that will tell us the answer. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's what I was actually thinking of. <laughs> Later on, Otis is going to say to Virgil, or to- Who the hell's Virgil? Wolfie. So, is it a prison break movie? Is it a prison- Oh, I went Bobby Brady. <laughs> <laughs>
in Child's Play 2. There's an obscure reference, but it's my go-to. <laughs> Arnie, we've referenced we've referenced Scream 3 and City Slickers 2. I think Child's Play 2 <laughs> is right in line with the references we're making today. <laughs> yeah, he's the greatest. I mean, he's not the greatest. Let me rephrase that. Bill Mosley's standard voice coming out of that Charles Manson beard and wig. Charles that, Manson never had hair like that. He, yeah, he did. On Geraldo, he had hair like that. <laughs> he had more body to his hair. <laughs> Close enough. He conditioned Arnie. He had this volume. <laughs> yeah, it was different hair, but that's okay. Now, Arnie, dive into eyes. That was lame. Let's do something else. Um, <laughs> so, and it's. <laughs> This is lame. Brian Blessed, man. You got to love the man. Um, I think I'll wear giant wings when I review the show. Um, so uh, we get it here. 